Hello, everyone. You're listening to Future Chain, your source for thought leadership on machine learning and artificial intelligence and supply chain management. I'm your host, Greg Fawcett. I have worked with AI, ML, NLP, and predictive analytics applications in industries from advertising to telecom. We're going to talk about all these technologies and how they bring value to supply chain management. We're also going to talk about the overall evolution of supply chain management. Our guest today is Edmund Zagorin. Edmund is the founder of BidOps, a strategic sourcing AI software platform that helps modern procurement teams drive savings by getting better quotes faster. BidOps was the winner of the startup competition at Digital Procurement World and named Best Startup by the Shared Services and Outsourcing Network. Prior to founding BidOps, Edmund worked as a sourcing advisor specializing in digital process transformation for large health systems, multinationals, and public agencies with a focus on value analysis, procurement e-auctions, and process optimization. Welcome, Edmund. Hey, Greg. Great to be here. Edmund, I see through your posts on LinkedIn that you're a wordsmith. I love your word of the week. Tell me more about that. Yeah, that's 100%. I enjoy, probably more than most people, uh, obscure and technical words. I think that's actually one of the reasons that I got kind of <laughs> delighted when I discovered procurement and supply chain, because it's, uh, it's full of concepts that are, that are grounded in just interesting words. So that's why I do the uh, procurement, digital procurement word of the week um, on, uh, on LinkedIn. I also understand that you have a passion about debating. Where did that start? Well, I just started debating in uh, in high school, joined joined the debate team, and just really kind of fell fell in love with the activity and ended up debate type that I did is a uh, partner activity. So got lucky and, and had some really good uh, debate partners and uh, just uh, got really into speaking, doing research, uh, the competitive aspects of it, the community aspects. Um, the debate community has uh, some, some great folks in it. And so, yeah, just really kind of intellectual passion. Debating must be a very valuable skill for sales. You know, I'm surprised. Most debaters become, believe, lawyers. And I don't see a whole lot of debaters in the, uh, in the sales world, but I, I do think that it's, it's valuable because in a lot of cases, what you're really doing when, especially when, whether you're, you're internal, you're on a procurement team and you're kind of making the case for a digital solution, or you work at a startup or a technology provider and you're creating some, some new technology, it's all about building the case and making sure that the, the evidence supports the conclusion that, in fact, transformation is, uh, is worth the effort and that it's the right priority. So I think that given how process-oriented a lot of management teams around digital solutions are, being able to put together data to back up the claims associated with, with transformation projects is a, is, a, is a valuable skill. Edmund, let's turn to your motivation for founding BidOps. You saw an opportunity from the use of Excel to manage procurement bids. What will break supply chain management of its allegiance to Excel? Yeah, look, I think that Excel is today the most common tool in procurement. I think it will actually remain that way 
for at least the the next decade will, will, will remain the most common because it essentially is the program that you can look at data offline for most people, unless you are schooled in writing SQL queries or you work inside of it, uh, a database. You're, if you want to use data and you're a, a business analyst or a procurement analyst or you work in supply chain, your, your access to data is mediated by Microsoft Excel. And so increasingly, what, we're, what we've seen in the market is that people want to use data to make decisions. There's an um, absolute hunger by management to have big decisions, especially purchasing decisions or supplier selection decisions, backed up by a ton of data. And as a result, these spreadsheets are getting out of control. We frequently see spreadsheets that are in the tens of thousands of rows, uh, even hundreds of thousands of rows, with columns that, you know, repeat the alphabet five or six times, you know, after you go through A, B, C, it, um, in Excel, it goes A, A, and B, B, and, and, and so on. And, and it will continue to do that um, as you add dozens upon dozens more columns. And so as the structure of this data increases, and of course, a lot of these more advanced spreadsheets have macros, VLOOKUPs, it begins to actually become a kind of software program itself, just right there in the, in the spreadsheet. And so the big change that we're seeing is, one, an emphasis on collaboration that's causing people to want to take this data out of desktops or individual computers and move it into the cloud where it can be shared and where that collaboration within the team and bringing different stakeholders actually into the data can become the basis for a common understanding of a project state, the baseline spend associated with a particular category or even a project, and develops a common understanding around the correct process to use, the logical next steps, and how to measure success. So that's, that's one big trend we're seeing. The other trend we're seeing, though, is just around escalating complexity. So, you know, we're seeing that companies are managing more SKUs in their supply chain for the very simple reason that there are new products. So every time you create new products, you are um, creating the opportunity to add to that, that amount of data that has to be managed within the, within the supply chain management function and in the procurement function. And so overall, there's this trend, um, and, and uh, John Cooper over at Industrial Exchange has, has written about this, um, a number of other people have as well. If you're a CFO and you see the number of SKUs in your supply chain increase, you will see that the management costs associated with uh, a unit of work in procurement, whether that's a purchase order, a purchase request, a request for quote, a request for proposal, the cost of managing each one of those units of work will increase disproportionately to top line revenue. So you have G&A costs that are going up as the number of SKUs increases, the cost to manage increases, but it does not produce the same return on investment because it's 
the you're not necessarily managing more spend and and concurrently um, the opportunity for greater profit margin. Instead, the spend is simply fragmented across more different line items. And it is that phenomenon, spend fragmentation, that produces savings opportunities in strategic sourcing. And And that's primarily one of the ways that strategic sourcing can drive savings by aggregating spend efficiently and giving the opportunity to to win that business to a um, in a structured process to a one or a set of suppliers. And then I think the third dynamic that you're seeing is volatility and disruption. COVID created in a lot of ways a wake up call for supply chains all over the world, whether it was toilet paper or medicine or the PPE that's increasingly just a staple of most workplaces, whether it's masks or swabs, and now to the distribution of the vaccine. What we're seeing right now in in supply chain is we're seeing massive congestion at ports and terminals around the world as nations prioritize shipping the vaccine and distributing the vaccine with cascading bottlenecks that are touching every other freight stream that's being set to the side so that the vaccine can can get to the population where where it's uh, urgently needed. This phenomenon of supply disruption is a global phenomenon, and it's not going away. It's driven by things like extreme weather events, which are uh, on the rise, and instability associated with economic inequality and conflict, which are also at a low level on the rise. And so I don't think that you are going to see the type of supply continuity that you had for, uh, for periods of time that was ignorable, that you could look the other way. This is becoming a priority of the C-suite. And you're seeing executive boards across the Fortune 500 wake up and say, What's our digital strategy for guaranteeing that our processes that are integral, mission-critical business operations have what they need to remain resilient, to stay on, and that we have backups and plan Bs and fail-safes in place so that the next time there's a hurricane, the next time the power goes out in Texas, the next time there's a massive pandemic, we know what to do. We're not left scrambling and we're not paying massive fees associated with uh, delays in our supply chain. Of course, the only way to do that from a systems theory perspective is to radically increase your optionality and, of course, increase your process speed. So optionality plus velocity equals resiliency. And so as people embark upon these digital transformation journeys, I think you're going to see a lot of leadership say, you know, this disruption is just not worth it. We need to prioritize being resilient. Uh, We need to be automated and we need to lower, significantly lower our management costs for these units of work so that we can do more with less. BitOps has brought AI to supply chain management. How does AI fully automate supplier negotiations? That's a great question. Um, and the way that, that BitOps actually began innovating in, in our space, um, actually like a lot of innovations, began with an insight that we came across quite by accident. Um, so we had uh, built a platform that could run not just uh, request for quote, which is where 
you know, you ask a group of suppliers for a set of quotes on a bunch of line items, you compare the results, and then you can make an award. That's, I would say um, that technology is, is fairly widespread in, in, in the market. What we wanted to do was to see if it was possible um, to eliminate kind of the critical friction or failure points in that process. And one of the things that um, we, um, we realized, in part because uh, I'm lucky to have in a, uh, a chief technical officer, our, our, our CTO, Ben Lakin, had spent a good kind of portion of his career at a company called SurveyMonkey, which is um, consumer survey products. You might have received a survey um, from a friend or classmate asking you to answer some, some questions. Um, and uh, at SurveyMonkey, they have, have developed a lot of um, techniques around user-friendly survey design. And so we were looking at, at uh, strategic sourcing and saying, you know, there's actually a lot of aspects of procurement that are, are similar to a survey where you're asking a group of people to respond to a set of questions. And if one of those people does not respond to one of those questions, then the process can slow or be delayed, which is one of the reasons why in procurement complexity does tend to produce bottlenecks that you know then produce costs associated with uh, a, an additional or more intensive process. And so one of the um, tried and true ways of making um, it easier to ask lots of questions from a diverse group of stakeholders um, is something called smart defaults, which is a technique in user experience design where you pre-populate a text field with a uh, given answer or, or value. Um, and so the initial uh, experiments with BitOps just involved pre-populating the, um, the text fields in a supplier's bid on behalf of the supplier, and then asking them to um, to modify it. This is actually, there's a um, phenomenon on the internet called Cunningham's Law, which states that if you, uh, if you want someone to give you an answer to a question, you should simply post an incorrect statement on the internet, and someone will very rapidly correct it um, or, or, or comment on it um, and, and, and tell you that it's wrong. And that dynamic is... Um, is actually very true uh, within user user experience design uh, more more generally, and uh, it's much easier if you give someone a starting place for them to make uh, a modification than it is if they have to manually key in the data from scratch. And so we did this and created manually the kind of responses for a number of suppliers in, in, involved in a uh, in RFX process, and we said this is just a a starting point. It's a default. And we, we also had filled in the pricing as well. And this was what changed everything because what we saw was that in many cases, the suppliers were actually using pricing that had been suggested um, and submitting it as their, their legally binding quote. Um, and we were startled by this because it wasn't what we expected to, uh, to have happen. Um, and when we actually came back to the suppliers and asked them, you know, why did you leave some of the default pricing in, they gave us a very reasonable answer, which was simply that, well, if this is what the price that's expected, we have opinions, strong opinions about certain line items that are very material to our business, but other line items, um, as long as it's within a certain range, we don't care about. And if, you know, this pricing that's suggested to us could potentially help us win the business, then, you know, shame on us if we um, significantly raised it and then ended up missing out. And so what we realized from these conversations was 
that the game theory dynamics of a uh, procurement process actually favored a scenario in which the buyer suggests a price more generally. And that the, um, the fact that procurement teams are very loath to do that, um, often assuming that um, if, they, if they don't make any suggestion at all, there's a, a chance that they could get a better price. It's a, a, a phenomenon known as the winner's curse in, uh, in behavioral economics, where if a price is suggested and then accepted, people believe that they're leaving money on the table, which, which often is not the case, actually. But people, people do, um, do believe that. Um, and so we said, okay, well, this is creating a tremendous amount of stress if we put it on the procurement team to come up with a price. So then we said, is there a way of automating um, intelligent price recommendations at scale for many line items to many different suppliers at once? And that's really where machine learning and AI came into play. Machine learning uh, for us is really a, it's a set of models that really kind of automate statistical tasks. And those statistical tasks change over time in relationship to um, an on, ongoing stream of data. So we use uh, what's known as an active learning machine learning pipeline. Um, and active learning just means that um, every time um, another uh, kind of transaction moves through the pipe, that uh, it inputs additional kind of data points into the overall distribution for a given set of line items. And those data points end up ma- improving the, the recommendation engine. Um, and so in much the same way that, you know, Netflix is able to recommend television shows or Amazon is able to recommend products that you might want to buy together. Like if you buy pepper, it'll recommend salt. If you um, buy ketchup, it'll recommend mustard. BitOps is able um, at scale to recommend uh, intelligent prices that suppliers are likely to use. And that saves time in the process significantly. And when you save time in a supplier's submission, you actually increase the competitiveness of the process. And it's that increased competitiveness in um, sourcing projects that leads to better quotes faster, more projects run per year, more spend influence, uh, and net a two to five X multiple on cost savings driven by the procurement organization. What is adaptive target pricing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And and, uh, just to be clear, the adaptive target pricing is... Uh, it's always a recommendation. It's a default. The supplier, of course, can reject it. Uh, they can input their own quotes. Um, we have some suppliers that absolutely love it. We have some some, some suppliers that uh, say, you know, essentially, no thanks, <laughs> not for us. We have our own quotes. We're going to upload them. We do not need to use the recommendation. But the um, the beauty of the the bid op system is that the recommendation engine does not need to be used by all participants in order for it to be beneficial because competitive solicitations by their very nature have multiple different options. And our goal actually is to use automation to support increased optionality so that if you add more suppliers to a potential contract award, you're not actually creating any more work. Um, So when we say that this enables full automation, what we mean by that is that you can have a purchase requisition or a bill of materials generate an object in BitOps automatically. So the project just appears. With a single click, you can send it out to any number of suppliers. You know, we have people that sole source all the way up to hundreds of different suppliers who can bid on any combination of line items 
And then you immediately get the feedback, seeing which suppliers have accepted the intelligent recommendation, um, which suppliers have rejected it. Um, it force ranks all of the um, quotes for every single line item, allows you to award to one or any number of suppliers, depending on your preference. And then that can be automatically put back into the financial system of the business through a seamless integration process to generate a purchase order ready for approval. Or if you want to approve the transaction manually before issuing a, a PO, you can do that as well. So definitely um, the adaptive target pricing is a key element, but the reason that it's important is because it's what, it, what, it's what enables um, automation at scale for this process. Edmund, how has behavioral economics informed the AI models you have developed for BitOps solutions? Well, I think that behavioral economics is tremendously important in understanding not just negotiations between individuals, but negotiations between groups of individuals that are often the context in which a sourcing project or a procurement process is, uh, is taking place. So for me personally, I was very influenced by the work of uh, Tversky and Kahneman and, and Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow is a book that I was reading when we were doing some of these early experiments with price recommendations. And you could see actually that the basic principle, which is, I think, actually a widespread intuition that, that many people have, which is that people are, I don't want to say lazy, but they prefer convenience and they like to do less work. And so if you make the default outcome, the most mutually attractive outcome, you can create win-win processes. Um, and that was a really kind of uh, an inspiration for the idea of intelligent price recommendations. And that's why the, um, the BitOps platform is really um, architected around this machine learning capability. I'd say beyond that, though, if you look at the Nobel Prize in Economics that was awarded last year, it was awarded to scholars, uh, Paul Milgram and, and uh, Robert Wilson, who are working in behavioral economics around procurement. Um, and indeed, the uh, auctions that they developed, uh, mostly uh, used in, in uh, the public sector, were some of the inspirations for what happened in the first wave of, of e-auctions with um, companies like Fair Markets and uh, Ariba, which, which uh, became SAP, and even companies like Jagger. And there's a, a slew of these, these early, uh, earlier e-auction systems that were developed, and a lot of them used these ideas from behavioral economics in, in, very, interesting, uh, in very interesting ways. In fact, Yakov uh, Gorm Larson from, from Maersk, uh, the shipping company, has just written a book about this period um, of, of auction development that's, uh, that's quite good um, and, and uh, I would recommend. And what you see is that all of these insights around bidding behavior are fundamentally insights from behavioral economics. But the part that's missing in a lot of in a lot of these um, designs is the user experience and the idea that actually, um, if you design an auction with the correct behavioral incentives, but it lasts two hours and it requires very active participation, that you're essentially imposing a transaction cost on all of those um, participants. And so, what BitOps really sought out to do, and and the way that we use machine learning is to make the best outcome first. And so if you think about uh, a traditional negotiation, suppliers often anticipate being negotiated down. And so their first offer is often artificially high, 
with the expectation that procurement is going to counter offer and you know shave some of the um, price off the proposal, and that that process, if they if they anchor high, will um, leave them with enough room where they can you know have a comfortable margin and um, take home some um, profit back to their business, uh, and that's that's kind of how a lot of sales works today. Well, that process creates an incentive for the first offer made in a negotiation to be really disadvantageous to one of the parties involved in the negotiation. And if you don't have a procurement function that's mature or you don't have someone who's capable um, as a negotiator, uh, then you uh, your business ends up paying higher prices. And that can even be true if you have very good negotiators, but they don't they're not able to manage all of the spend. So there are some categories that just have seen these year over year percentage cost increases that might even be baked into into the contract structure. And so what BidOps sought to do, and, and really the role that behavioral economics plays in this, is this idea that if you anchor the first offer in a negotiation in such a way that it's acceptable to both parties, you can actually reduce the transaction time, create the possibility of increased transactions, and give um, the benefits associated with that outcome to both parties. And so the supplier wins in the form of a faster deal and a faster purchase order, greater sales efficiency and greater revenue velocity. Um, The procurement team wins in the form of faster processes, running more processes and and some cost savings, but not as much cost savings as if if they had asked for the lowest possible price. And all of the suppliers win by having a much lower cost of um, participation, even if they're not ultimately awarded the business. You've touched on it, but tell me more about the inefficiencies in supplier negotiations. I mean, I think that anyone who has uh, participated in most traditional enterprise procurement processes could probably create a long laundry list of pain points or frustration elements. But I think that you know, the most common ones that you hear is that uh, they're administrative processes. They often contain a ton of paperwork. And it's very difficult in um, moving through that process to know if and when a, um, an outcome is, is guaranteed. Um, and so in, in BidOps, we actually have a um, kind of internal design philosophy about this, this problem um, and we take a, uh, another idea from behavioral economics, which is adverse selection. So adverse selection is this idea that if you make a process really hard, not very many people will do it. And so in, if you have a process that uh, is for procurement and it includes 25 pieces of paper that have to be filled out, you're not really selecting for the best capability or best quality or best lead time or lowest total cost of ownership or best value or best relationship. You're selecting for the supplier that has the capability of filling out those pieces of paper to the best degree. And so adverse selection in procurement means that there are entire categories of the economy where the winners end up being the companies with the best sales and marketing teams rather than with um, the best products, the best quality, the best prices, or the best customer service experience. And we think that um, that's just bonkers. Overall, the whole point of procurement is to increase the value that uh, suppliers and, and partners can bring to an organization. Um, and to some extent, that's about lowering costs, but it, it's also about just aligning 
the suppliers and partnerships with the needs of the business. Um, and if you have a process that includes 25 pieces of paper, then you're creating an adverse selection cycle that works against that ultimate purpose. Um, and so the kind of counter countervail to that is this idea that we use um, of auspicious selection, which is that uh, if you design a process in the right way and you make it really easy, you're much more likely to optimize that process for for value and alignment and service and quality instead of optimizing it for a company that has a really vociferous uh, high energy sales and marketing engine. Great. How do you define sourcing enablement for bid ops? Yeah, so sourcing enablement is really about giving everyone at the table the tools they need to reach the best deal fastest. And so we're one of the few platforms that provides a ton of capability to the supplier as a way to help the buyer. So if you think about the idea of intelligent price recommendations, these are recommendations that are provided to the supplier. Uh, the buyer, of course, is able to preview them and gain insight into them, but ultimately they are designed to help the supplier offer a better quote faster. And that's part of what produces the win-win the virtuous cycle element of the, of the platform is that by giving suppliers some insight into where the buyer is looking to see the price outcome at the line item level, the supplier the dynamics of the um, engagement change. It takes a lot less time. There's a lot less cost to manage the process. And our goal really is if we can enable suppliers to, in a single session, so really you know, 20 to 60 minutes, to submit quotes on hundreds of line items by essentially um, reviewing and approving rather than manually keying in each price or manually keying it into a spreadsheet or copying and pasting it into a spreadsheet, then that enablement is going to translate to an overall better relationship. Another way to think about this just interpersonally is that if you have someone in your life and uh, you probably have this idea of, of social capital um, or being able to only ask for, for a certain number of things and, and um, as you do things for other people, you might accumulate social capital um, to ask for more things. And so people frequently will, <laughs> especially with suppliers where they need to be able to ask for very critical things in very critical moments, will preserve their social capital with suppliers for asking for, for things that they need um, when they need it. Uh, and so if you think about that from a process standpoint, if you ask a supplier to fill out 200 lines in a spreadsheet and 20 to 200 documents, which is um, actually more common than you'd think for these sourcing projects, then when it comes time to ask them for uh, a discount or to ask them for an additional warranty, uh, you've kind of run out, <laughs> run out of social capital to, to some degree. And so sourcing enablement, the, the fundamental idea of sourcing enablement is that enablement takes friction out of the relationship. And it means that both parties have more energy to make asks and give gives on things that actually matter um, to each other's businesses. How about sourcing collaboration? Collaboration is in, in BitOps, it's really between three different groups. One, of course, is the procurement team uh, just internally. The other group is um, the suppliers and uh, the, the supply base and the supply chain. 
Um, but the third group is the internal business customers and the stakeholders who um, increasingly are just curious about what's going on in the procurement process and where projects are at, and they want insight, and the procurement team would prefer that there was an automated dashboard that could deliver that information rather than um, having to participate in transactional touch base or check-in meetings. And so BitOps enables that through uh, automated reporting and KPI dashboards, through a uh, slick messaging app that allows for the type of regulated communication that's often necessary in, in sourcing, where uh, you can communicate with, with many different suppliers without them knowing who each other are. You can also communicate within your procurement team and to your stakeholders. Um, and you can communicate one-on-one with each supplier individually, and they can communicate back. And so that, that type of communication, um, uh, structured communication, we think is, is, is key to collaboration. And then the last way that we think about collaboration is just through systems integration. So whether it's the ERP um, or procure-to-pay system um, that you're generating purchase orders, fundamental to our vision is the idea of data portability, data being able to move through multiple different systems and for users to be able to take their data with them wherever it's needed to make the decision uh, that's most important at that moment. And how do you handle supplier management? I think that when you break supplier management down into specific tasks, a lot of that management activity falls under the heading of asking suppliers questions or asking suppliers for documents or asking suppliers for quotes or asking suppliers for other pieces of information and then collecting uh, information about their performance and activity and comparing that information against attestations and covenants and service level agreements that were part of the original sourcing process. Um, And so BitOps enables all of those through the kind of basic automation that I described earlier, as well as through smart defaults. So the most frequent complaint that you hear from supplier management processes is just repetitive information entry. Um, And so the idea that if you're a parent that has kids in college, you probably have heard of the Common App, this idea that the same information could be reused over and over rather than having to be filled out repetitively over and over again. Um, And so BitOps offers that level of experience where if a supplier inputs basic firmographic information like their name, location, et cetera, that information will will pre-populate for other requests that they might have. Um, So it's labor-saving for them. And then it just makes it easier to get basic information like W-9s, tax uh, or VAT details, uh, insurance certificates, um, as well as um, quality and supplier diversity certifications like women-owned, minority-owned, veteran-owned businesses that are increasingly um, salient and uh, important um, in reporting hierarchies within procurement um, because they're part of overall corporate disclosures as part of 10Ks for public companies, and just increasingly part of diversity and inclusion initiatives for for many companies. What criteria should companies use to select strategic sourcing solutions? That's a a great question. And I think that one of the criteria that that we think is really important is, is it user-friendly? Traditional enterprise software has 100 or 1,000 features, um, so many features so many um, different tools within the Swiss Army knife that 
it's very challenging to use even the simplest of tools. And we um, really subscribe to the idea that sourcing should be easy, sourcing should be accessible. And if you find that uh, there's a lot of manual data entry, then we don't think that even the slickest interface makes that user friendly. We think that um, software increasingly needs to bring data to the user rather than asking the user for their data through manual data entry. And so I think that I would say if you're evaluating a solution, just watch how much you are spending time typing. And we actually, when we do um, user usability tests on our own product, we try to ensure that most processes a user has to go through can actually be done without any typing at all. And that usability requirement is part of the reason why BitOps is so speedy. Because if you think about the kind of exemplar of, of usability, a lot of people like the phrase Amazon-like shopping experience. And what makes Amazon um, so user-friendly is that you can buy with one click. Uh, the the one-click shopping makes the process so much simpler. And so that's something that we um, we think is is a great criteria when you're evaluating solutions. The other criteria that I'd encourage people to think about is how how consumable is your data within the solution architecture? Now that sounds a little bit technical, but let me let me break it down. A lot of solutions you upload PDFs, and the solution has no idea what data is in the PDF. And so if you wanted to get analytics um, about, say, you know, what quotes were in a project some months or years ago, um, you just wouldn't be able to um, because the system never knows what data is in the PDF or in the Word document. The system is, is really being used much more as a, a data storage facility rather than a true database. And so in the era where data making, you know, using data to make decisions is increasingly important, um, you want to be using solutions that actually can see what data is is moving around in um, in the actual system. And then I think the the third criteria um, is I would strongly recommend that people adopt best of breed solutions. Um, and best of breed solutions um, have kind of three sub criteria. A, they're generally built for like a specific job title or function within the organization. So, you know, for example, strategic sourcing manager would be one of those personas. Second is they have a specific set of jobs to be done that are can be enumerated. And actually enumerating the jobs to be done is, in my view, better and more informative than actually writing out product requirements. And the third um, aspect of a best of breed solution is that it has been deployed just for this persona and just um, for this set of jobs to be done over enough time that it has gotten better and become more usable. Um, and so I'd ask a solution provider what their feedback loop is for usability improvements. How often are they pushing new code to production? Um, how many user tests per month are they doing? And um, how how is the information from those usability tests going back into the software development lifecycle. And the reason that that is so critically important to the definition of best of breed 
is because all of these systems are constantly evolving. And what a system looks like today and what a system looks like a year from now will be radically different. And if you you buy a best-of-breed solution, you are essentially hitching yourself to a wagon um, that is going to turn into a car and then turn into a Tesla and then turn into a rocket. And that's a really smart decision because all that we know about technology is that the pace of change and the acceleration of innovation is is increasing. And so you want you want to use a um, solution that is is going to be innovating uh, as well. And you want to have some insight into the pace of that innovation cycle within the um, within the technology firm. And increasingly, you're seeing a lot of discourse around things like kind of make your own software kits and or solutions that are very, very broad that cover many different job titles or indeed um, are kind of just these giant um, integration solutions that um, have many, many different modules. Um, and those um, that would be a different approach. That would be a different strategy than best of breed. Best of breed is really focused on this specific job title, set of jobs to be done, and this feedback loop uh, around continuous improvement. What is the ROI from using BitOps solutions? The ROI is really delivered in kind of three different buckets. Uh, one is just cost savings, uh, tangible cost savings that return to the business and just uh, make your make your balance sheet look a whole heck of a lot prettier. The kind of methodology around that is just that if you negotiate more prices on more line items in more projects with more suppliers, you are able to access the benefits of changes in the market and competition in the market in an automated and accelerated fashion. The second uh, is just time savings. So uh, returning labor hours to your staff that can focus on more strategic projects. And then third is just elimination of uh, manual processes is an end in itself. That return on investment uh, is typically twofold. A is you're just making systems that are more efficient. And that efficiency means that you're lowering your process costs. So if you measure, for example, like a cost of a purchase order or another unit of work, that you know cost per unit of work management cost will, will decrease. The B sub point is that it actually makes it easier by eliminating manual processes. Um, you're able to uh, attract and retain a higher quality and caliber of talent that's just looking for a digital workplace where there is um, less friction, less feeling of uh, kind of manual busy work um, and just more focus on strategic decision making. I think though that all of those, the ROI framework of acquiring a solution misses the, the much deeper point, which is that we as a society have decided that we um, are just no longer going to accept arbitrary decision making for mission critical business functions. And so that means that there is an absolute necessity to use data to make decisions. And Greg, the the shocking thing um, in many companies today is that many companies do not have insight into their line item pricing for their supply chain period. Um, it's kind of the same thing where... Um, if, uh, if I went to a restaurant and I got a sandwich and two weeks later you asked me, Edmund, um, what, uh, what sandwich did you get? Um, I, and I, all I could do was to look at my, my credit card information. I wouldn't be able to tell you. 
I would be able to tell you which restaurant I ate at and roughly how much you know money I spent based on my my credit card statement. Um, but I wouldn't be able to tell you what sandwich um, I purchased or if I purchased a sandwich and a drink or uh, et cetera, another set of, um, uh, of, of items. And many companies today are in a situation with supply chain uh, automation where there's, there's just not a whole heck of a lot of detail in these underlying backend systems. And so companies today in many ways are in an arms race to build a data foundation and you know they've started doing that by investing in data centers, in data lakes, by unifying um, enterprise data architecture. And these investments are in the you know millions or even hundreds of millions of dollars um, that, that companies are making. But what they haven't done is actually create a plan to get insight into their line item pricing for their entire bottom line revenue. And in order to do that, uh, an investment in a, in a strategic sourcing AI solution is absolutely essential um, because there is no other place where that information can be collected. It won't be collected on the purchase order. It won't be collected on the invoice. It has to be collected on the bid. Um, and that's why we think that this is such an exciting category because we think that this is something that every company and especially every manufacturing and industrial company will need to do in the next 10 years. Now, Edmund, you have a lot of great case studies to illustrate the value that BidOps brings. Let's start with pharma. Yeah, so pharma, um, I think, is is a really powerful example. There are, are two um, case studies that I would point to, both actually coming from, uh, from UCB Biopharma. So one of those case studies is actually in API chemicals. And... Um, in this uh, particular case, there were CMOs that were outbidding each other for a relatively small global supply of a specialty chemical. And it was necessary to efficiently aggregate demand and to indicate willingness to pay up front. So that's where the RFX uh, capability associated with our intelligent price recommendations really made a difference. Um, because this was a case where the suppliers were acting on information where they perceived the demand to be actually higher than it was. And so the intelligent recommendation uh, was accepted and actually uh, successfully drove millions in, uh, in savings at scale. Um, and so this not only created uh, opportunity for uh, UCB Biopharma, but it actually created a better foundation for the partnerships with the CMOs. Um, and so that, that, was, that was pretty powerful. Um, another example, though, is in um, slightly more tactical categories like um, lab equipment and consumables, where you have, um, in some cases, bespoke equipment with custom requirements that's only being bought every so often. So there's no repetitive transactions. There's no real um, kind of uh, transaction history to go on. And so the, um, the, the necessary task is actually to just execute a, a negotiation with one or more suppliers driven by a requisition process internal to the organization. Um, and so that's an area where BitOps at scale can not only drive impressive savings outcomes, net uh, over 13.5% across a huge number of, of distinct equipment purchase transactions, but also 
can provide uh, insight into the change in price of specific uh, equipment types over time, the insight into the behavioral personas of specific vendors in negotiating these prices, so showing which suppliers are more likely to um, offer the best product at the best price, and to um, actually enable uh, full automation through insight into that line item level data. That's a nice transition into chemical manufacturing. So chemical manufacturing is, it's a huge category. Uh, chemistry touches you know every product that we use and consume, and there's a tremendous amount of industrial power and effort and energy that um, goes into uh, sustaining our global civilization, which is kind of built around a lot of these chemical supply streams. And uh, so just as an example, you could look at the machines in the factory that require spare parts, uh, a huge category for chemical manufacturing and one that's been very challenging to manage in part because the individual elements of the category are not very high value. And so uh, I mentioned earlier the high cost to manage um, and the high cost of a unit of work in procurement and sourcing can actually be a cause of a cause of escalating costs because if it costs a lot of money to manage a category and a category doesn't have that much money in it, then you know you might have heard the phrase the lemon ain't worth the squeeze. And that is something that in chemical uh, companies that have vast procurement teams, the spare parts category often uh, falls falls under that that rubric. Um, and so BASF was able to um, leverage BitOps intelligent price recommendations to um, automate a um, negotiation across uh, all of their uh, European production sites for uh, over 5,000 line items across eight different suppliers, all bidding on different combinations of line items and where the intended outcome was to award uh, the business to multiple different groups or combinations of suppliers. And the intelligent first offer actually enabled the suppliers to to submit their quotes and for BASF to award the business in a matter of weeks, um, whereas previously it had taken four to six months. Um, so you see uh, this idea of smart defaults, simplified processes, and uh, just removing manual data entry as much as possible from the equation leads to a better outcome uh, at scale for, for, uh, for everyone involved. How about automotive? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and BASF is active actually in a, a huge number uh, of, of, of industries. And um, in, uh, in, uh, in automotive, um, you know, we, we support the, the coatings business, uh, which is more focused on, uh, on automotive um, and specialty paints. But there are other customers in uh, automotive that we've seen um, really strong results with. Holman ARI is uh, a company that's actually been able to make fantastic strides with implementing BitOps AI in their uh, procurement and, and, and supply chain. Holman ARI is a, um, a uh, retail dealership and actually vocational truck manufacturing automotive business that's known for its, uh, for its fleet management. So if you think about any business that um, owns cars and operates a fleet, the kind of provisioning of those cars, uh, their, their repair and maintenance, as well as just asset management falls to different departments within, within Holman uh, ARI. And so really just being able to efficiently negotiate prices for parts at scale 
um, and also to run supplier consolidation programs to aggregate demand more efficiently for, for national contracts. Um, so again, in this process, the, the intelligent price recommendation is absolutely crucial because you have a huge number of line items. Um, you have friction associated with manual data entry um, in the existing process. And BitOps enables this transaction to run smoothly in a short period of time for a better outcome and, and really just a simpler, easier process for, for all parties. Where have you found success in the food and beverage industry? So in the food and beverage space, first of all, I think if you look at companies like Bell Brands, which is, has leveraged BitOps to, uh, to, to a great degree, the challenges, once again, are with ingredients which there could be many different potential sources for supply. Um, so it's about efficiently um, com- you know, requesting and comparing prices across that um, potentially vast market. And also in indirect materials. So just going back to spare parts and components um, and elements of replacing, maintaining, um, and ensuring reliability for the machines in the actual production sites is um, is part of this uh, essential mission critical function that the that the procurement team is supporting. To close out your case studies, what are you seeing in the consumer product space? Yeah, so uh, consumer packaged goods uh, is is increasingly uh, a category that that we're seeing a lot of adoption in, and I would say that whether it's from the manufacturer, the distributor, the the brand that there is um, a tremendous amount of bidding that has to go into every single product that consumers pull off the shelf in a uh, Kroger or Safeway or Whole Foods. And, you know, we see that from, you know, we have CMOs in the health uh, health and beauty um, and cosmetic space that uh, are bidding out bills of material for uh, large uh, fashion brands, as well as in, um, of course, consumer packaged goods in um, everything from paper products uh, to office supplies to, uh, to, to food and beverage. And so, you know, the, the use case there, once again, it's all about uh, requesting and comparing quotes and using intelligent price recommendations to eliminate manual data entry um, and ensure that the, um, yeah, the, the best outcome is, uh, is the one that everyone starts with. Okay, great. It's very helpful to see the application. Now let's turn to your strategic sourcing trends for 2021, beginning with the importance of having a digital strategy in place. We're seeing every company that has a critical supply chain function feel the pressure of the past year. And automation and digitization are the only way to do more with less. Um, And so Unless the company's leadership has a huge appetite for increasing headcount in the supply chain and procurement function, every one of those companies is creating a digital roadmap, often assigning a project manager to own that um, digital roadmap moving forward, and in many cases are selecting not one, but five or six different solutions, uh, best of breed solutions that are focused on specific jobs to be done specific job titles within the org structure and getting um, getting their team what they need to, to perform at, at peak. Now, you've talked about it already, but um, tell us a little bit more about embracing the cloud. I would say embrace it. <laughs> um, it's, uh, 
enough said. Yeah, it's here. It's not going anywhere. I also think that, I mean, the cloud in a very real way is the consumerization of enterprise IT. So it's bringing the benefits and simplicity and convenience of consumer internet to enterprise data. And that just means that it's going to improve faster. It's going to continue to innovate. Uh, It runs on microservices that are participants in ecosystem that's constantly getting better. And so I think the problem with uh, selecting technology for the enterprise is you don't want to buy something that's going to be obsolete next year or two years from now, or worse, uh, worst case is to buy something that was obsolete five years ago. But, you know, you have to feel like you have to buy it because it integrates with, you know, what you've already bought um, or what you're um, currently using in your back end financial system stack. Well, that's not the that's not, in my opinion, the way that um, people will make decisions over the next five years about innovation. I think rather than focusing on, well, what do I have and what can I fit into what, you know, what I currently have, people are actually going to say, what is possible with new technology and how do I get there? Um, And I think that um, going to the cloud, um, at least for some applications, I mean, I don't know a company that forbids their employees from using LinkedIn. They might exist. Uh, I haven't heard about it. Any employee that uses LinkedIn is already using cloud software because LinkedIn is a cloud software application. Most email clients are cloud software applications today. So I think that um, most people that say, oh, we don't use the cloud, we're not ready for the cloud, are being um, perhaps uh, a bit disingenuous. Uh, And I think that in the long term, this move towards cloud applications it has tremendous benefits for, for everyone involved. It's a lower cost of maintenance. It's a uh, access to continuous improving um, innovation. And it the underlying infrastructure gets better and better, um, especially if, if you're using um, public multi-tenant cloud like AWS or uh, Azure or Google. So I think, um, you know, I'd say go for it. Uh, you probably in some ways already are, especially if you use a smartphone. Um, that infrastructure is, is, is cloud-based. And try and learn good security practices. I think going to the cloud makes security more, not less important. And I think investments in things like password security and, and basic security hygiene are um, essential. Um, I think in the technology world, these are, are frequent topics of, of conversation. I think you're going to hear more about them in, uh, in the enterprise IT world as well. All right, Edmund, uh, let's return to your strategic sourcing trends for 2021, beginning with being prepared for increased volatility. What does that mean? You know, if you look at the macroeconomic trends, and I think you can see some of those trends reflected in the Biden administration's recent executive order on supply chains and critical supply chains in chip manufacturing and semiconductors, Mm -hmm. you see actually a case study of what's happening in a lot of areas of the economy where you have cascading effects of congestion in one sector or unexpected demand in one sector that then can actually create kind of network effects that are disruptive. And so, you know, if you have trade restrictions in one area, those can lead to retaliatory trade restrictions in another area. 
And to an extent, that was something that the United States engaged in as far as China with the tariff, as well as a political willingness to impose costs on trade, not just with, uh, with China in, in uh, particular areas, but actually pretty broad trade restrictions. Now, of course, not everything in the supply chain that, that the U.S. consumes come from, comes from China or, or indeed comes from another country. There's uh, plenty of stuff that is, is made um, right here uh, in, in the United States. However, when the supply uh, in some area, for example, chip manufacturing, changes or decreases dramatically in a short period of time, then um, it may create an incentive for a factory in another, another category to switch production. And production switching can then create a shortage in another area. So one thing, um, and we've seen over the past year, an incredible amount of this exact type of cascading effect happen. You could look at toilet paper. At the beginning of COVID, there was a tremendous uh, shortage of toilet paper for the house, even though the net quantity of toilet paper had not uh, decreased. And this was because the supply chain for toilet paper that's used in businesses, restaurants, commercial buildings, and so on, is uh, completely different from um, the consumer toilet paper uh, supply chain. And it took some time to switch over. And in fact, it was really just different participants, different pulp mills, different uh, factories, different distributors. And you see that actually during COVID with the repurposing of a lot of factory uh, production lines to hand sanitizer and uh, gloves and masks. And even in the automotive space, the wholesale switching over of certain production towards building uh, ventilators, which, uh, which was a, um, a moment in the pandemic that I think kind of crystallized what happens when changing market conditions create incentives for different types of production that then can uh, lead to unintended future shortages in, in, in other categories, especially when demand comes surging back for the original produced good or component. Um, so that's something that happens and is to, to an extent uh, endemic to supply chain practices like demand planning and inventory management. But now we're actually seeing it become a really relevant factor in new product introduction. So when, when companies now introduce new product, considering the pricing of the underlying materiel and components, uh, as well as the infrastructure around logistics is absolutely critical. And that's true whether or not you have a supply chain that includes things like rare earth minerals or other scarce material. Uh, and it actually is something that you're hearing a lot in the pharmaceutical industry with the introduction of the COVID vaccine, where actually a constraint in vaccine design and deployment, given the um, tremendous worldwide demand for this vaccine, is if you, you designed a vaccine that was 100% effective, but it relied on a um, chemical that was very, very expensive to produce and maybe was very short um, as far as its, the total global supply. Well, you might have created a great vaccine, but you have not created a vaccine that can be effectively distributed or manufactured at scale. Um, so these design constraints 
have been have been used actually for a long time in the introduction of new products and new drugs. But as um, the uh, relationship between supply and demand and the volatility created by events like pandemics or severe weather or actually um, in increasingly uh, disruptions that might be driven by political or social events as well could create a motivation for people to take those into account in the product design phase as people begin to think about how you plan for volatility. And from our perspective and what we're seeing in our, our customer base is that the best way to plan for volatility is optionality plus agility. Optionality plus agility equals resiliency. And so rather than saying, okay, well, we need to diversify our supplier base up front in case a supplier goes bankrupt or an area of the world becomes more challenging to, um, to deal with from a supply chain perspective, to actually say, no, we're actually living in an economy where at any time we should expect a um, supply chain to become congested, to switch to a more valuable form of production, or to be disrupted as the result of M&A activity uh, can also be um, the cause of a, a supply disruption. And so increasingly, companies are turning to their supply chain management functions to say, you need to, at a moment's notice, be ready to shift suppliers, to have new suppliers essentially qualified in the batting cage and, and ready to, um, to step up to the plate. And you also need to be able to very quickly execute on a business process that's aligned with uh, understanding commercial terms, qualifications, the risk profile of a given supplier. Um, and risk, by the way, could mean financial risk, geographic risk, brand or reputational risk. Could also mean cybersecurity risk, as you're seeing with uh, controversy, re renewed controversy uh, associated with the, the solar winds breach. And uh, you need to be able to execute on that entire sourcing process for any of your critical supply chains at a moment's notice. And it needs, to, uh, it needs to work and be stood up very quickly. So from a cultural standpoint, the operational side, yes, is optionality plus agility equals resiliency. But from a cultural side, it's also about learning how to trust partners more effectively and quickly, what information needs to, um, to be available to, in order to make that switch or to, um, to spin up additional capacity. And from a team perspective and uh, information sharing perspective, it's also about learning how to integrate more quickly one's operational needs from a communication standpoint, but increasingly from a technology standpoint as well. The systems of the future that, that are built um, around the concerns of volatility in, in supply chain that's increasingly become a concern of the, the C-suite at many companies. Um, this is a, a topic that corporate boards are talking about, that um, business and division leaders are, are talking about, business unit leaders are talking about, that the those, that those concerns are being addressed not merely through technology that provides a process management workflow for internal stakeholders, but actually integrates with the suppliers directly, including um, in some cases at the financial system. And so if you see as a model for resiliency and the future of this technology space, 
semiconductors and, and high tech in terms of electronics that have um, hundreds or even thousands of components and uh, frequently deal with exactly this type of volatility, you see the um, overall trend is towards very, very uh, diversified supplier bases, rapid and agile processes, and then integration um, with the tier one suppliers, but also even down the chain. So it's definitely a trend that we're, that we're seeing continue. Now, which industry is uh, demonstrating best practices in terms of agility? I think the pharmaceutical industry deserves a lot of credit in terms of not just developing the vaccine in, in record time and getting it to a place where, where it can help people um, stay healthy. But I, I think from a supply chain perspective, there's a lot of best practices in, in the agility that of, of their supply chains that, um, that other industries, I think, can, can, can take note of. Not many people realize this, but a huge percentage of the chemicals that go into drug manufacturing actually come from Wuhan, China. And so in uh, the early days of the coronavirus, even way before it was, um, uh, had reached the United States, drug manufacturers in the pharma industry were extremely concerned that there would be a long-term supply disruption, not for COVID-related drugs per se, but for all drugs, given that the chemical source of many of these drugs was from a place that the Chinese government had put under uh, quarantine. And so that actually, to an extent, was the beginning of this heroic effort in creating additional capacity, creating alternative supply, and really kind of mapping the market. And if you look at the growth of big data as far as supplier information, some of the most mature data sets are actually in pharma suppliers. Very interesting. Uh, how ironic that sourcing from the Wuhan province is driving supply chains across the board, which suggests the importance of, of deeper supplier relationships. Talk a little bit more about how you deepen those relationships. So critical supplier relationships are based on trust and that trust materially is represented through direct real-time communication and the capabilities to kind of be in sync with uh, your supplier's needs and concerns, to be able to ask, make asks of your supply chain, particularly uh, when there's a lot of volatility in the market, and also to um, be able to have uh, a quick way to align with them on expectations both upfront in a contractual relationship for understanding performance, but also longer term to understand how, from a, a process standpoint, the expectations associated with performance, quality, service delivery, and pricing affect each other. And I think that that's one of the areas that you hear a lot about from a, from a supplier collaboration and trust perspective. If you interview 100 supply chain leaders and you ask them, what's wrong with supply chain today? One of the words that you hear a lot is the word silos. And it's, it's usually in the context of different departments interacting with the same supplier and not the left hand not knowing what the right hand is, is saying. Or the idea that expectations are created in one part of the organization, but the service is delivered to a different part of the organization. And so 
with the hyper growth of solutions like Slack and Microsoft Teams and just the advent of collaboration technology within the enterprise more generally, you're seeing a hunger for the application of that technology within the supply chain so that you can very quickly break down silos, reach a common understanding about a relationship. Is a relationship healthy? Are things going well? Are there issues? Are there performance issues that have been identified previously or that are cropping up again? Or is um, a supplier going truly above and beyond? And so when they ask for additional uh, capacity or when they come back with an issue to recognize that that is, is something that has been, been accompanied by kind of a uh, above and beyond level of effort and service um, from, from that supplier. So I think you know, they say uh, content is king, but uh, context is queen. And I think that uh, increasingly the technology stack around supplier collaboration is being asked to deliver context to these interactions, data associated with the relationship, suppliers' historical performance, as well as hard numbers around pricing and um, the specific items and locations and orders that, that are involved in the relationship. Very insightful. Now, sustainability has become a real buzzword, but tell me why it's become important from an economic vantage point as a strategic sourcing trend. You know, it's, it's interesting because you're seeing the growth now in the stock market of funds that aggregate uh, stocks that um, are considered socially responsible companies, stocks and socially responsible companies. And there's an entire subset of, of those stocks that are considered to be green investments um, or that drive towards the uh, sustainable or circular economy. And the, uh, the classic thinking around why those stocks are worth more is that if a company has the extra capital to invest in sustainability and the extra management bandwidth to demonstrate that they are a sustainable company, then they're probably doing enough right in terms of overall performance management that they're just a less risky bet and more likely to be running a, a tight ship and, and, and growing a great company. And I think that that intuition is now being reflected in decisions of, of economic actors across um, the market more broadly, where companies that do sustainable spend reporting are by definition companies that do spend reporting. <laughs> and so not all companies do, by the way, right? There are companies that, that don't have a great understanding of their, their bottom, bottom line revenue, where their money's being spent, the specific business models that are involved. And so I think that uh, sustainable procurement is a critical element of all sustainability reporting, because of course, a huge amount of the um, sustainable impact that any company has is in their supply chain and with their, their partners. If you look at carbon reporting, scope three emissions are almost by definition have to be um, the result of an analysis of one's, one's supply chain and account for the, the most carbon emissions for most companies. And so all of the reporting thresholds that have been created from a compliance standpoint um, that are increasingly not only part of companies' 10Ks, but are part of uh, the decisions that mutual funds are making and that hedge funds are making as they create 
kind of canonical portfolios that then other retail investors can can participate in. And so I think when you look at the drivers behind sustainable procurement, they are fundamentally economic, but the rational basis of those drivers is actually being driven by the perception, um, rightly or wrongly, that, that companies that that are able to implement sustainable programs are just, just overall better run companies. Um, and I think that, that that's a trend that has gained steam over the past 10 years. Of course, sustainable procurement as a practice has been around for, for quite a bit longer than that. But the, the current wave you're seeing um, is really kind of based off of that thesis. Um, and that thesis has now gained a lot of traction in the market, and I think a lot of credibility with the wave of electric vehicles. Um, so if you if you just think about the impact that companies like Tesla and the wave of SPACs, uh, special purpose uh, vehicles, um, or uh, rather blank check companies um, that that have launched, like um, uh, companies uh, like um, Lordstown and, and Nikola. Um, that, uh, that are, that are um, in some cases, nascent companies that are already public. What you see is these are companies that are making bets aligned with a sustainable procurement and sustainable supply chain thesis. They're betting on consumer preferences for businesses that emit less carbon or maybe even capture carbon, businesses that do not have liabilities associated with toxic waste dumps or massive waste streams that um, could potentially be reasons for consumers to object or boycott those products in the future. Mm -hmm. And they're companies that are able to attract a higher caliber of talent because increasingly um, the most talented workers want to work at companies that have a um, mission for social good and that are making the world a materially better place and not just talking about it or having a slogan about it, but have a dashboard and have a set of key performance indicators around social good. Um, so that all aligns with the way that procurement and supply chain is structured already. It's a very metrics driven quantitative activity. And it also has a huge um, opportunity just from an impact and portfolio perspective to make a significant difference. So I think when you look at that, the drivers, you know, are again, kind of external investors, corporate boards, um, corporate leadership, um, but then also talent. And then from the consumer side, you're seeing, you're seeing that, that development. And so there's a, a bunch of new companies in the procurement and supply chain space, companies like uh, EcoVadis or Integrity Next, um, which, which gather this um, ESG risk data in a very granular level and, and, and segment it and allow people to gain insight into their suppliers. But increasingly, what um, we believe will happen um, going forward is that the level of analysis will move from vendor level analysis, which of course tells you something about your partners and, and whether or not you're, you're doing business with the, right, with the right companies and the right suppliers, but will actually move down a level into product level analysis. And so people will actually ask the question, what is the carbon impact of a dollar spent in a given category or the carbon um, or toxics or even waste impact of a dollar spent on a specific SKU number? And so that uh, innovation is very likely to be driven by marketplaces. Uh, and increasingly, 
what you're seeing is as it becomes easier and easier to create, curate, and launch new marketplaces, there's an appetite among companies for not just buying a marketplace solution or buying a Amazon for business, but actually developing and curating their own marketplaces. And, and you're seeing companies like Honeywell um, that launched an aerospace market um, do this more generally. Um, but there are increasingly are companies that are creating marketplaces that are impact driven, that contain products and SKUs that drive towards a sustainable impact. And those marketplaces are um, easier to track, easier to manage, easier to measure than trying to do essentially sustainability audits that estimate the sustainable impact historically of previous decisions um, and aren't necessarily as future looking or as decision relevant uh, in the moment where someone's making a purchasing decision. Now, Edmund, I'm glad you mentioned EVs and the evolution of EVs will be AVs. Uh, And what I'd like to do is conclude with a discussion on artificial intelligence, which is obviously important to the category. What must be done in terms of data management to fully leverage AI? You know, Greg, it's funny, and I know this came up when you and I first, first talked, but I'm actually a bit of a contrarian when it comes to the role of data management in the development of AI. Great. The kind of classic thinking on this question is, oh, clean your data, get a lot of it together. You need a lot of data to even begin starting on an, um, an AI transformation. You're going to have data scientists are, are expensive to hire. They, you know, you, you want to make sure that they have a lot of material to work with when they, when they begin. And I think that and this kind of reflects the, the journey at BitOps. If we had come in to each of our customers and said, you need perfect, excellent data on all of your spend for us to begin making price recommendations and intelligent um, benchmarks, we would never have gotten anywhere. And instead, what we did is we realized that we had to actually generate synthetic data sets using uh, inferential inputs in order to Um, essentially create historical transactions that then could be validated based off of contextual assumptions. And if you look at the way that historical data is is segmented, it's also being organized in ways that I would say in some cases are arbitrary. Um, And that matters a lot for the development of AI. If you take a machine learning model and you give it a bunch of predefined categories and the categories are defined by cost centers, then um, as the AI learns from this, uh, this, this stream of, of data, you'll wind up with an AI that knows a lot about what matters for different cost centers and is maybe roughly able to describe the variance or attributes of the variance associated with each cost center's data stream. And that could be useful to you if that's exactly what you're interested in. But what most people want AI to do is they want AI to be able to tell them, is this cycle time long or is it short? Did we do a good job? Did we do a bad job? Is this savings um, for this category good or should we ask for a cheaper price or should we ask for or should we be willing to give a higher price? People want AI to, to understand the range of possible outcomes and then give them some real insight as to whether or not the outcome that they have in front of them is, is it, uh, where does it belong on that range? 
And if that's what you want AI to do, then I strongly recommend at least considering the option of beginning an AI journey tabula rasa. And the reason for that, I would say, is that there is so much information on the internet. And so it is very possible with only a a limited amount of information to begin with to pull in a vast array of third-party data and create synthetic data sets that that mix and match um, tons and tons of attributes and then be able to very quickly identify patterns um, between suppliers and purchase orders and purchase requisitions and spend files without having to insist that all of the um, data for, uh, for an AI project that feeds into a uh, machine learning model come from the customer. And so I think um, my recommendation for anyone that's interested in master data management as a topic and is interested in data custody and curation and, and residency and security and is thinking about building um, data lakes or, or is building a, a lake house um, on, on their data architecture for procurement, um, is to begin thinking very seriously about what the future state of this master data actually is. And if the correct way to get to that future state is a process that requires manual cleansing of the current inflow from existing legacy systems. Because if it does, then that's a lot of work to achieve a very small benefit. And it might not be the correct approach if you really want to deploy AI at scale across your supply chain. Terrific. Now, Kearney has produced a, a seminal report entitled The Future of Procurement Technology. Uh, what are the lessons from that report? Oh, well, I've read a number of these reports. And so you, you put me on the spot. You know, I would say that the cardinal lesson from the research that, that Carney has produced that I think is really important is this idea of best of breed. Mm-hmm. And the basic thought here is that we used to live in an age where you bought one technology vendor and you had them, you know, you were married to them. You had them for five or even 10 years and everything you wanted was provided by them. But I think, um, you know, there's another Carney report called The Future is Already Here that illustrates that this trend towards best of breed entails an unbundling of the procurement stack that's very actually similar to what we saw in sales and marketing. So if you think about modern sales teams today, they have five or six different solutions that all provide a different value and all integrate in the cloud together. You have um, Zoom Info or a similar type of solution for data that just provides business contacts. You have a CRM solution like Salesforce or Pipedrive that helps manage those relationships and keeps kind of all of the records together. And then you have an automation solution like SalesLoft or Groove that actually manages the email outreach or HubSpot as uh, another popular one. And then you have a solution like Clary that provides data and analytics and it focuses on pipeline management. You know, And so I think that if you look at the way that procurement's evolving, you might have um, from the data side, a company like Tealbook or ScoutBee that's providing supplier contacts and risk information. Um, as well as potentially qualification information and other metadata. 
You have a, a CRM solution like BitOps or Scout RFP, or there's a handful of others um, that kind of sits in the middle. And then you are seeing those automation solutions actually being incorporated into the kind of front end CRM solutions. And those solutions then have to talk to another system, which would be a procure to pay system for purchase order and requisition generation, which would be something like a Coupa or NetSuite or another type of um, ERP or procure to pay system, uh, perhaps uh, Ariba. And so as you see that, you know, kind of evolve, there are new, newer procure to pay players like Source Day in manufacturing or Procurify in um, just kind of uh, general procure to pay that offer these solutions in a modular format. So instead of waiting for a, a kind of monolithic large player to develop one of these solutions, which was kind of the... Um, traditional uh, ERP driven approach to digital procurement. The future of procurement is driven by this absolute renaissance that we're seeing in the solution space as new startups launch products for specific people that have a specific dedicated job title that really owns the solution um, and a specific set of work to be done that's done uh, within that set of parameters and then can be optimized for a specific set of of key performance indicators or, or, or outcomes. And as long as you have that, you have best of breed. So as long as an application has a specific person or spe very specific group of people with, with recognizable job titles, specific set of jobs to be done, and uh, you're able to optimize to a very small number of key performance indicators, then you can see that continuous improvement cycle that characterizes um, what that Carney report uh, describes as the future of procurement. Um, and the future of procurement is excellence, is best of breed. Um, and I believe that same report refers to the um, kind of jack of all trades, master of none era or solution space as mediocrity. And I think that people are tired of it. Um, they're sick of the bottlenecks, they're sick of waiting, um, and they want things that move quickly and deliver a delightful user experience. Well, thank you, Edmund. This has been such a rich and insightful discussion. I really appreciate it. Greg, my pleasure. Glad to be a part of Future Chain. It's exciting what you're doing and um, it's exciting to see what's happening in the space. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. We're, we're grateful to connect with you. And thank you, listeners. Please visit your favorite podcast platform and give us a review and subscribe. We're building a resource for you Email us at info at futurechain.org with your feedback, suggestions on guests, and questions. Until next time, thank you.